Remain standing for the gospel lesson and the sermon text from John chapter 3. This is the gospel of God, so give it your ear. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be or how can these things happen? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen and we do not and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the son of man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light And does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light. That his deeds may be clearly seen. That they have been done in God. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for your word. Help us, your people, to hear it. To believe it. And to do it, we ask in Jesus name. Amen. Please be seated. Last week, we learned about the necessity of the new birth. The necessity of being born of God, of being born from above, of water and the Holy Spirit. 
This week we'll learn about the necessity of the cross, the necessity of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. The new birth in Christ and the cross of Christ Christ are connected. The cross is foundational to the new birth. The new birth is important. It's critical. But the cross of Christ is even more fundamental. Because without the cross, there could be no new birth. If Jesus does not die on a cross to take away your sin, there is no possibility of a water and Holy Spirit birth from above for you. You see, you don't just need a new you, a new birth. You also need God to take care of your sin, the penalty of your sin, the, condem- the condemnation that your sin brings. So if you, you could be a new person and still, if your sin is not taken care of, then it's not salvation. And so these two things go together. The new birth can only take place on the bedrock of the cross. Otherwise, it's not really a new birth. It's not really salvation. And last week, we watched Jesus bring Nicodemus face to face with the necessity of the new birth. We learned that when one is truly born of God from above, there is radical repentance, a radical work of the Holy Spirit in the person's life. That that person's heart is radically renovated so that his whole being is brought into the newness of life. And the evidence of the new birth in you must be discernible. The results of being born from above by water and the Spirit can be seen. The fruit of true faith is inevitable. And it is necessary. Faith without faithfulness is not real faith. Faith without personal holiness is not saving faith. Or as James puts it, faith without works is dead faith. If you have dead faith, you will not see the kingdom of God. Hebrews 12, 14 says that if you do not, if you don't have personal holiness, you will not see the Lord. It's obviously not talking about perfection, perfect holiness, but real holiness, will real growth in grace and godliness. If the spirit is not working holiness into your life so that you're being conformed more and more into the image of Jesus, if you're not pursuing personal holiness, you will not get to be with the Lord when you die. That's the clear teaching of Hebrews 12, 14. It's not because your holiness saves you. It's because those who are saved by God become holy by God's work in them. When God saves you, he then begins the work of making you like Jesus. Those two things always go together. When you get one, you get the other. If you don't have one, you don't have the other. And so this is serious stuff. There's a lot at stake here. At the end of my sermon last week, I read two large passages from Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 4. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. Ephesians 4, 17 to 24. And I won't read them again. But one of the things that these passages teach us and many other passages in Scripture teach us is that the new birth is an ongoing work of the Spirit in your life. 
rebirth, or to use a fancy theological term, regeneration. Those two words mean the same thing. Regeneration, being generated again, born again. Rebirth or regeneration is not just a one-time work of God in your heart. The, the, the new birth is not something that happens once and then it's over. No, the new birth or regeneration or rebirth is an ongoing work of God in believers. One of the most overlooked teachings and, and yet one of the most important teachings of John Calvin, in my opinion, is his teaching that spiritual rebirth, spiritual regeneration is an ongoing work of God in believers rather than simply a one-time work of God at the beginning of your spiritual journey. This teaching often gets overlooked, but it shouldn't because it's eminently biblical. That's the right way to view regeneration. A lot of theologians, especially modern theologians, wrongly assume that regeneration Rebirth is only the supernatural work of God that he does in the heart of a believer at the beginning of his spiritual walk with Christ. But that's not the full biblical picture. That's part of it. We must not reduce the rebirth or regeneration to a single point in time. And and there's reasons, there's pastoral reasons for my going into this and harping on this. Now, of course, it's true that the new birth in Christ has a beginning point. We can't deny that. Why would we? It has it has to begin at some point in time. Every believer has a point at which God definitively rescued him from the kingdom of darkness and transferred him into the kingdom of his beloved son. But in Scripture. Regeneration is not reduced to that beginning point. In Scripture, the new birth is not understood simply as a one-time spiritual deposit that occurs at the beginning and then carries you through somehow in itself. Rather, the new birth in Christ is something that God begins and then something that God upholds and renews and sustains Constantly by his ongoing grace. That's why Paul says in Philippians 2, 12 and 13 that you must work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then the next clause is for it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Salvation includes your ongoing faith and faithfulness. It includes God's ongoing work in you. That's why Paul also says in Philippians 1, 6, that the work of salvation is not something that God just begins in you, only something God begins in you, but also something that he completes in you. On the day of Christ Jesus, it'll be complete. God's work of salvation in you is a continuing work. And I said there's pastoral significance to this. One takeaway from this is that we shouldn't spend... Therefore, a whole lot of time looking for that beginning point of the new birth in terms of God's work in our heart. We can we can look to baptism as the sacramental beginning point, the the ritual beginning point, And that's important that there's also pastoral significance to doing that, making sure that we do do that. 
But you shouldn't worry about trying to figure out when God began the ongoing process of regeneration in you. The work of bringing about holiness in you. If you can see the process at work in your life, you don't need to waste time figuring out when it began. There's no evidence that God is working in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. You should simply repent and look to Jesus. You're always looking forward, not backward. So the important question is whether you see God's ongoing work of salvation in your life right now. Are you trusting and obeying Jesus right now? If so, you are born of God. Nicodemus was not born of God. He did not have saving faith because he did not have true faith. He didn't understand what Jesus was saying about the new birth. Those who are not experiencing new birth cannot understand what it's all about. And now we come to the sermon text for today, which is John 3, verses 9 to 21. Let me reread verses 9 to 13. Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things happen? How's this going to be accomplished? Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher, the teacher of Israel, and you do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and we testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. Okay. There, th- th- these verses that I just read raise two questions that we need to tackle as quickly as we can and then, and then move on. First, why does Jesus say we in verse 11? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen. And you do not receive our witness. Who is the we that Jesus is referring to? Now, Some have said that this we refers to Jesus and the Father. That makes a certain amount of sense. As we read in our epistle lesson, Jesus does talk about the testimony of of God. I mean, John does talk about the testimony of God the Father. So there could be this testimony of God the Father and and Jesus. And Jesus is referring to those that, that combined testimony and saying we. Uh, It. It doesn't seem likely in this context, especially in the flow of the gospel. Jesus hasn't revealed the sorts of things that we would expect him to already be talking about. If if that's what he's getting at, it's possible. We can leave that as a possibility. Certainly doesn't make sense to to see the we as a reference to him and the other disciples, because no one's no one besides Jesus has seen the things that Jesus has seen in heaven. Jesus is referring to heavenly things that he has seen and that he's telling Nicodemus about. And as verse 13 will make clear, Jesus is the only one who's seen heaven. So is there another option? Well, I think maybe the simplest and most likely is that Jesus is subtly mocking Nicodemus. Um. When, when Nicodemus began the conversation with Jesus, he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher 
sent from God. Now, this is a private conversation, but between two people, it appears. And yet Nicodemus starts off talking about what we know. And what, what we need to remember, too, is that Nicodemus and the Jews, the we there, is of the world still. So they actually don't know. Nicodemus doesn't know, and yet he's saying we know. He's saying we know something that we don't know. And so that's how Nicodemus starts. In verse 11, Jesus, it seems to me, is aping Nicodemus, perhaps even mocking Nicodemus a little bit. Nicodemus informed Jesus about what we know in verse 2, and now in verse 11, Jesus is telling Nicodemus what we know. What the real truth is. We speak what we know. That seems to be the best explanation. Though perhaps it's possible that he is referring simply to him and the father. Now the other question has to do with verse 13. No one has ascended to heaven. but He who came down from heaven. That is the son of man who is in heaven. Okay? So why does Jesus say that he is in heaven. While he is on earth. Talking to Nicodemus. Now, I spent a lot of time on this verse because there's been a lot of discussion on this verse throughout the centuries. The Greek is fairly straightforward, even though many scholars try to, to rework the grammar so that Jesus is saying something other than what he seems to be saying, because it does seem odd that he's saying to Nicodemus that he's in heaven while he's right there in front of him on earth. Some scholars have tried to address, to, to find a solution in saying that verse 13 contains the words of John, not the words of Jesus. And so according to this view, verse 13 is an inserted comment by John, who was writing this gospel after Jesus had ascended into heaven. In other words, verse 13 is not, should not be in red letters. But that doesn't work because verse 13 contains the title, Son of Man, which is only a title that Jesus uses for himself in John and really in the rest of the Gospels pretty much as well. It's never a title given to him by others. And so Jesus is still the one talking in verse 13. The interpretation that I landed on is, again, what I think is the most straightforward and it takes the grammar at face value. And it's also the oldest interpretation. Going back to the early church, it was the view of Augustine and Chrysostom. It was also Calvin's interpretation. Here it is. Verse 13, in verse 13, Jesus is testifying to his own divine nature, his own omnipresence, his presence everywhere. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, in essence, Nicodemus, even though I'm standing here in front of you talking to you, I'm also in heaven because I'm everywhere. I came from heaven. I'm still in heaven. And when Jesus became man, heaven was not denuded of the Son of God. The, the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity did not strip heaven of the second person of the Trinity. Here's what Augustine said on this passage. Behold, he was here. He was also in heaven. He was here in the flesh. He was in heaven by his divinity. Yes, everywhere by his divinity. He was born of a mother, not quitting the father. 
Chrysostom says that the Son of God is not even is not in heaven only, but he is everywhere and he fills all things. So Jesus was in heaven while he was on earth. And this interpretation shouldn't be difficult for us to accept because John says something very similar about Jesus in the same chapter. Look down at verse 31 in John 3. John the Baptist is talking about Jesus in verse 31, and he says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from above is above all. So Jesus, who came from heaven, who came from above, is at this moment above all. And to say that Jesus is above all is synonymous with saying that he is in heaven. Actually, above all is the phrase that Paul uses in Ephesians 4, verse 10, where he says that Jesus ascended far above all the heavens. Same wording. Above all means in heaven, above the heavens. So twice in John 3, we are told that Jesus was in heaven while on earth. Jesus says it about himself in verse 13. John the Baptist says it about him in verse 31. So while the second person of the Godhead was on earth, he was still above all or in heaven. And so here we have two clear statements of the divinity, the godness of Jesus, the son of man. He's above all. He's in heaven. So he must be God. Only God can be everywhere at the same time. So now that we've dealt with some of the difficulties in this passage. We can start working our way through the text. And so if I lost you somewhere in the last five or ten minutes, okay, now would be a good time to jump back in. In verse 9, Nicodemus asks his final question. How can this happen? How can what you're talking about with regard to this new birth from above, how can it happen? How is it possible for Israel, for anyone, to be born of water and the Holy Spirit from above. Israel's already been born. They already went through their mother's womb. That's what Isaiah 44 says. What are you even talking about? Nicodemus doesn't understand. And it's because he didn't keep reading in those passages. and Or at least he didn't read with understanding those same passages in the Old Testament. In verse 10, Jesus chides Nicodemus, Are you the teacher of Israel? And you do not know these things? In other words, Nicodemus, how can you be the teacher of Israel and not know what Israel's scripture teaches about the new birth in Isaiah 44 and 45 and Ezekiel 36 and 37? Last week, we talked about why Nicodemus should have known about the water and Holy Spirit birth. That was predicted by Isaiah and Ezekiel. The back side of your handout this morning has last week's handout on it. And there you can see, if you just look at the the color coding I did, you can see why Nicodemus should have known about the new birth from above of water and spirit. Especially he should have known from Isaiah and Ezekiel. In verse 12, John 3, verse 12 Jesus tells Nicodemus, if you don't even believe what I'm saying about the earthly things, how in the world are you going to believe what I have to say about the heavenly things? If Nicodemus doesn't understand the earthly truth about the new birth, how will he understand the heavenly truth 
about Jesus and the cross and the new creation in Christ that's coming. That's already here. Now, when Jesus refers to earthly things here, he doesn't mean unspiritual things. He doesn't mean unimportant things. This is a relative term. He simply means things that are less fundamental than the heavenly things. The new birth is important. It is of spiritual importance. But there is something even more important. The new birth is big, but there's something bigger. The new birth is spiritual, but there's something even more deeply spiritual. But if Nicodemus doesn't understand what the Old Testament says about water and spirit birth from above, there's no way he's going to understand what what Jesus has to say about why he came from heaven to earth, what he came to do, what he came to accomplish and how he is going to accomplish it. There's no way he'll be able to understand the cross of Christ. There's no way he'll be able to get his mind wrapped around the new creation that is about to begin, that is already beginning in Jesus. And that will be definitively inaugurated in Christ's death and resurrection and ascension into heaven. And then his pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the church. In verse 14, Jesus points to the heavenly things by way of a story from the Old Testament. An interesting story at that. Jesus takes a story from the Old Testament and he shows how it is a picture of the cross. The Messiah's cross that's coming. Let's get verses 14 and 15 before us. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, at first glance, it seems quite strange that Jesus refers back to this story of the bronze serpent in Numbers 21. Why does Jesus think it's a good idea to compare himself being lifted up on the cross to a serpent being lifted up on a pole? Let's remind ourselves what happened in that story from Numbers 21, 4 to 9. The people of Israel were in the desert and they decided to speak against God and against Moses because they were disgruntled. In response, God sent venomous snakes among the people and many of the Israelites died from these snake bites. But many, many of the ones who were still alive came to Moses and they confessed their sin and they begged Moses to to pray to God, ask him to take away this curse, these serpents. So Moses prayed, and then God told Moses to make a snake, a serpent, and put it on a pole so that anyone who is bitten could look at this pole with the, with the bronze snake on it and live. Verse 14, Jesus refers to this story as a picture of the cross cross of Christ, you see, is an Old Testament truth, not just a New Testament truth. In fact, the cross of Christ is the main Old Testament truth. It's what the whole Old Testament is really all about, what it's all pointing to. The cross goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Remember what God says in verse 15, that, that, that the Christ, doesn't say the Christ, but he's talking about the Messiah, the seed of the woman, will one day 
come and crush the head of the serpent. And that's what happened on the cross. So Genesis 3, already in Genesis 3, right after the first sin, the cross comes into focus. And the rest of the story of the Old Testament continues to point us to Jesus, to the cross. And so Jesus is just interpreting the Old Testament the way it's supposed to be interpreted. It should be no surprise that Jesus sees in this story from Numbers 21 a foreshadow of the cross. And we need to notice a few things about this story from Numbers 21 as we consider how it points to the cross. First, notice that the bronze serpent was for people who were sick who needed to be healed. It wasn't preventative. It it didn't prevent people from getting sick. That's not what it was for. No, the serpent on the pole was specifically for people who were already sick and dying. It was for people who were already poisoned and who needed to be healed by God. Second, notice that the bronze serpent on the pole was for people who needed to escape God's wrath. The snakes in the camp were specifically sent from God. It wasn't just some kind of natural phenomenon, and then God kind of used it for his purposes. No, it was sent from God. God's wrath was on these people because of their rebellion against God. They didn't see it as rebellion They were just expressing their grievances, but God said it was rebellion, and so God's wrath came upon them. The snake on the pole was the means by which God rescued his own people from his own wrath. Maybe you can begin to see the parallels between this event and the cross event. We can see Why Jesus chose this picture from the Old Testament. These people needed to be healed from the venom. They needed to be rescued from God's wrath. And their only hope was this bronze serpent on the pole. All of mankind is in a similar predicament. Except far worse, we need to be healed from the poison of sin. Which stems from that serpent in the Garden of Eden. We need to be rescued From God's wrath because of our sin. And our only hope is is in the Son of Man on the cross. The only thing that can heal us is Christ on the cross. The only way we can escape God's curse, God's wrath, is to look at Christ on the cross. Isaiah 45, 22. Look to me and be saved. All you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. On the cross. Christ is saying look to me and be saved. All you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. There's no other God. And there's no other way. To be saved. There's only one place to look. If you want to be saved from your sins. Only one place to look. If you want eternal life. Only one place to look. If you want to escape the wrath, the judgment, the condemnation to come. 
only one place to look if you don't want to be condemned by God forever in hell. And it's Christ on the cross. Look to the cross of Christ and live. There's more symbolism that we can't miss here. The bronze serpent that Moses put on the pole was itself a symbol of the curse. The the curse that God sent was a bunch of serpents. And then the thing that removed the curse was a serpent on the pole. And so the curse was put on the pole. The curse was put on the pole. On the cross, Jesus became a curse for us. The curse was poured out on the cross. The curse was put on the cross. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that Jesus became sin for us even though he knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He became sin so we could become righteous. He became a curse so that we didn't have to be cursed. He took our condemnation so that now in Christ there is no condemnation for you. In becoming like the snake, Jesus embodied our sin. Like the snake on the pole, Jesus became a curse on the cross. We can't even just say that the curse was poured out on the cross. It was poured out on Jesus such that he became a curse himself. Even though he knew no sin. He was condemned by God on the cross so that there would be no condemnation left over for you and for me, for those who believe in him. By shedding his blood on the cross, Jesus removed the poison of sin. He took upon himself the penalty of sin. He destroyed the power of sin. That's why the new birth is possible. And when you die and you go to heaven, he will remove the presence of sin from you completely. He took care of the poison of sin, the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and the same cross, the same work on the cross will be what removes the presence of sin from you when you come to the end of your life as a believer in Jesus. Christ is telling us here that the new birth comes through a simple gaze of faith. Not perfect faith, but real faith. Not sinless faith, but true faith. The new birth that takes place here on earth comes through looking to the heavenly Christ lifted up on the cross. Verses 16 to 21 tell us what's at stake very clearly. The cross of Christ is not just a good story, a good moral lesson, story of sacrifice that provides a good example for us. It is that, but it's much more. 
It is an essential event and an essential truth. It is essential for your salvation. Apart from the cross, there is no salvation. Apart from the cross, there is no healing. Apart from the cross, there is no escaping God's wrath. It was necessary for the Son of Man to be lifted up on the cross, to die, to rise from the dead, and then to ascend into heaven. The Son of Man must be lifted up if anyone was going to be saved from their sins. There's no new birth apart from the cross. There's no eternal life apart from the cross. There's no light at all apart from the cross. Apart from the cross, there's only darkness and condemnation. Verse 16 is also very likely where the words of Jesus stop and become the words of John, the inspired words of John, the writer. Now, verses 16 to 21 are probably in red letters in many of your Bibles, but, or in quotes still, as if they're the words of Jesus. That's one interpretation, but I don't think it's the best one at all. These verses have all the appearances of being John's commentary on what Jesus has just said. Verses 16 to 21 are the words of John, not of Jesus on the earth. It doesn't matter a whole lot because ultimately they're the words of Jesus. He is the one who speaks, who his spirit inspires what was written here. So the most important thing to do is to hear them and to believe them. And as I read here, listen to John as he expands on Jesus' teaching about the necessity of the new birth and the necessity of the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his own son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And this is the condemnation. That the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Several years ago, an editor at a publishing house who has a blog interviewed a bunch of theologians and asked them to summarize the whole Bible in one sentence. Now, he he realized he was really asking something that's impossible, but it was a good exercise because you get to see how these men who believe the Bible and who've spent their lives studying it, how they answer the question, what angle they come at it, how they can try to summarize all the important things of the Bible in one sentence. And it was funny, I read through him, and one of the, one of the theologians cheated. He, he had this extremely long sentence with a bunch of colons and semicolons, and so that's cheating. Most of them played by the rules. But the best answer, I thought, there were a lot of great answers, all good, but the best answer was by a well-known theologian, New Testament scholar, who simply quoted John 3.16. 
That was his sentence. That was his summary of the Bible. And I don't think there was a better answer than John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is the truth, the central truth that the whole Bible points to from Genesis 3.15 on. The story of the poisonous, fiery, venomous serpents in Numbers 21 is important because it tells us what the great necessity is and what the great necessity is not. We can imagine that the Israelites, maybe before they confessed their sins to Moses, their sin to Moses, before that, we can maybe imagine that they attempted to come up with a cure of their own. Maybe they tried to leverage whatever technology or understanding that they had to fix this problem. It would have been a natural response. It's certainly what modern man would have done, right? So we shouldn't be surprised if we found out that they were trying to concoct their own antidote to counteract the poison. Or maybe some of them tried to organize and fight deadly serpents. Maybe they thought that the snakes could be exterminated somehow. We'll deal with the problem that way. Well, if any thoughts like that did go through their heads, they were futile thoughts. The only one who could cure them was God. And the only way they could be cured was by looking at that bronze snake. If you think you can get rid of the poison and the power and the penalty of sin by improving yourself or being smarter or being good enough or or maybe being better this week than you were last week or being really religious or avoiding certain things, You are thinking futile thoughts. The only one who can save you is God. And the only way you can be saved is by looking to the cross of Christ. By looking to Christ and what he did for you on the cross. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Look to Jesus and live. And if that's where you are, if, if, if you're already doing that and you've been doing that, then keep looking to Jesus and keep living all the way to the end. Working your salvation out with fearing, fear and trembling as God works in you the salvation that he began. I'll close with Hebrews 12, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. We thank you for this heavenly truth, Father, that you have given to us through your Son, Jesus. 
who did endure the cross, who despised its shame, who took our curse, who rose from the dead, who ascended into heaven, and who is sitting at your right hand. We thank you that you did what it took to rescue us from our sin, from its poison and its power and its penalty, and someday its presence completely. Thank you for this glorious, heavenly truth. Help us to love it, to believe it, and to live by it, to live in terms of our great calling faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen.